5: Hello America and the rest of the world. I'm Robert Evans, and this is yet another terrible introduction for the podcast that exists that you're listening to. And it's called Behind the Bastards and About Bad People. And that's the introduction. Sophie, do you think that's a keeper?
6: I mean, honestly, better than some of the ones you've done in the last couple weeks. Like
5: well, I'll have to I'll have to correct that and make it worse in the future. Last episode
6: because... he just goes,
0: Hitler. Oh my god.
5: Well, uh, uh, well, you know, just uh, in case we my forgot. guest today who you're hearing from is Teresa Lee. Teresa?
0: What's up? How's it going? How I'm in Studio, but you're not. I can see you on a screen. I am not. This is cool. I'm
5: in the East Coast, which is terrible. Um, <laughs> and it knows it. In yeah. general,
0: you just hate the East Coast.
5: Yeah, I mean the West Coast, like, yeah, you know, the, 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 the 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 yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're 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 all West Coast elites on this podcast. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yes. Elite. Teresa. with uh, The three. How do they do the hacks or hacks or elite? Mm-hmm. L. No. Seven three three. Whatever. Mm-hmm. Don't at me. Yeah. Okay.
5: <laughs> yeah. Now, <What's> Teresa, <laughs> you and I worked together. For we did a number of years mm-hmm. at a website called Cracked, where we were we were East or West Coast elites together. Mm-hmm. Um. And uh. And now. Uh, you have a podcast called You Can Tell Me Anything, which I've guested on once. Mm-hmm. Um, is there anything else you'd like to uh, announce right now? You also uh, are professionally funny, um, which is, <laughs> I think a really is pretty cool.
0: She has a really cute dog named Wushu who's friends with
6: Anderson. She has an
5: adorable dog. Mm-hmm. I
0: do have a dog. Um, sure. I Besides being uh, professionally funny, I, I'm not never funny if you not paying me, by the way. But... Um, <laughs> I uh I have a short film, so yeah, if you guys wanna check it out, it's called I Think She Likes You. It it came, it came out like about a month ago, but you know, it's still out there and can never spread the word too much considering we have no marketing money, but it's on YouTube. youtube.com youtube dot yep. com slash I think she likes you.
5: Well, we're going to I'm gonna ask my listeners right now to do guerrilla marketing for your show. Go spray paint an MTA <laughs> station. Um burn no, down no, no, a no, no, wealthy no, person's no, house. No, 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 no please and, don't do that. Uh, do you have uh, some problem with me urging uh, people to do, commit crimes on your behalf, <laughs> Teresa? Is that something you don't like? Please uh,
0: please do not uh, commit crimes on my behalf. Uh, please don't commit crimes on anyone's behalf. Um, and, uh, you know, just stay in school. Uh, cool.
5: <laughs> Teresa's saying that to be polite. This podcast is very pro-crime. Um, okay, cool. So cool get cool, out cool, there. Cool. Break some laws. Break some random laws. Go jaywalking. It's a good time. It's safe. <laughs>
0: mm. Yeah. Do yeah. it blindfolded. So, Definitely do that.
5: Yes. Yeah. That's com- that's the competitive version of jaywalking. Competitive jaywalking. jaywalking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. the the judge The judges, the ER doctor who sees you, um mm-hmm. Teresa. Mm-hmm. Have you ever heard of Basil Zaharov?
0: I don't think so.
5: Have uh, I? Wait. Say, say the
0: last name again. Hazard?
5: Zaharoff. Z-A-H-A-R-O-F-F.
0: Okay. No, that was me buying yeah. time to try to think of
5: <laughs> an answer. But no,
0: um, I'm going to just go with no. And you know what? If that sounds no. dumb, that's okay.
5: It's not. I'm, I, did, I had never heard of this guy until I started researching, until like right before I started researching him. Um, he's a fascinating figure. Um he has more nicknames than I think almost any historical figure I've ever studied. Um mm. he's was called the merchant of death, uh mm. the armaments king, the Whoa. mystery man of Europe, uh, a whole bunch of them. <laughs> Out um, of those three, he, the mystery
0: uh, man of Europe really just doesn't hold up to the others. It's just <laughs> That sounds like think, a, like a draft's uh nickname.
5: Yeah, like it's, it was in somebody's like Google uh, uh <laughs> like 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 a saved email they're just like yeah "Ah, it sounds like when you text your friends to to be
0: like what do you think and they're like no
5: (laughs) yeah well he didn't choose his nicknames uh but he did choose his career um and the things he did in his life are why so this guy was the um the inspiration behind one of james bond's early uh villains the head of specter so like one of the first bond villains like it was directly inspired by this guy and he was basically a bond villain um this is going to be a different episode than a lot because a lot of what I'm going to tell you today are lies okay. um, because th- there are so – this guy told so many lies mm. about his background that nobody knows for certain a lot of things. Um, gotcha. The dude we're talking about today um, is, in short, the guy who invented the international arms industry. Wow.
6: Um,
5: yeah. So he, this is like the guy who figured out like selling guns to multiple, like different countries as like an international business. He's like one of the very first, like there mm-hmm. were a couple of, like, other people at the same time, but like, he's the, he's the brilliant mind behind the arms industry. You could call him like the father of the military industrial complex. So that's our dude today.
0: I will, Are you a fan of the international arms trade? Um, was that? No.
5: <laughs> <laughs> Are you a fan of the international arms trade, Teresa?
0: Um, you know, uh, I, I'm usually fan of international things, but in this case, I have to say um, hard no.
5: So your podcast is not currently sponsored by Raytheon?
0: Um, you know, I, I haven't checked, but I'm going to guess no. Um, the, I, I don't think oh, uh, we're sponsored by a, a mass weapons uh, distributor, but, uh, you know, I guess... I, I, we can still sur- I, could, I mean, su- I don't know. Things can surprise. If you're me.
5: listening, Raytheon, <laughs> opportunity here. You could, you, yeah, could, you, get, you could sell a, a lot of drones.
0: A, a, a small group of comedy slash therapy mm-hmm. fans <laughs> who might be interested yeah. in buying mass weapons of mass destruction.
5: <laughs> I mean, I, I happen to know Teresa that your podcasts have a lot of fans who are the potentates of small Eastern European nations. So, um, <laughs> yeah, that's a there there might be some sales in there. Mm. Um yeah, so uh Prince Zacharias Basilius Zakharov uh was born in a small town in Anatolia, which is like Turkey, um on October sixth, eighteen forty nine. Oh he's a Libra. Um there are very few Yeah, he's a Libra. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's two in a row. They love yeah, the the, the, the we got um so there, there aren't a whole lot of set facts about his early life, um, but I called him a prince at the start and he absolutely was not a prince. We know gotcha. for a fact that he was in no way a prince, but he mm-hmm. would lie about being a prince his entire life.
0: Not even by marriage?
5: Not, not even by marriage. Okay. Um, yeah. His parents were Greeks um, and they'd spent most of the mid-1840s fleeing political instability uh, as Greece fought for its independence from the Ottoman Empire. Um, since they were... Uh, living in the Ottoman Empire for most of their lives, uh, identifying as Greek was not an entirely safe move. Mm. Uh, so they changed the family last name from uh to Zakharov um, so that they could pretend to be Russians. Mm. Um, so from an <laughs> early age, his parents are like, tell everybody we're fucking Russian. Don't let them know we're Greek. Yeah. <laughs> so that's cool. Um, hidden as Russians, the Zakharovs wound up living in a town named Mugla in the Anatolian Peninsula. Um, today we would call it Turkey, uh, but they didn't then. Zacharias was named after his grandfather, and he lived in Mugla until he was three, when his family decided Constantinople was a safe enough city to move to. Hmm. Um, all of this part is probably pretty accurate, but Zakharov would spend the rest of his life trying to obscure even these very basic details of his upbringing. Uh, as an old man, he told a teenage girl that he wanted to fuck this... Quote, also he, yeah, he's that guy. Okay. (laughs) Um, Quote, my father was Russian. You look like, ew.
0: (laughs) It's one of these episodes. Okay, cool. (laughs) Well,
5: he's, I mean, he's a rich old arms dealer. Uh Of course he's gonna try to have sex with children. Uh, Oh, no. I mean, yeah. (laughs) Um, quote, my father was Russian and my mother was Greek of the Byzantine family of Desbrassinos. Um, in another, uh, interview published around the same time, though, he told a journalist, uh, I was born in Anatolia. My father was of Polish origin. My mother was French with a Levantine strain. So everyone who talked to him, he would tell a different story about where his parents came from, what his, um, his upbringing was. Um, he was just like one of those people who lied habitually about every single aspect of their lives.
0: Hmm. I feel like with that He's a, a cool lot of guy. times you think oh there must be some massive secret but in general it's just cuz the truth is so boring or so uninteresting that they're just trying to obscure it.
5: Yeah, you know I I think it and I think it often starts with people who just like because the truth is so boring and they don't want to be boring. Um but some of those people wind up living very interesting lives and I guess if you if you have this combination of lying about everything uh, and having an interesting life mm-hmm. that's what it takes to be an international man of mystery sure
0: sure sure i can see that yeah and also yeah. If you have which is why a lot i lied about
5: my money. upbringing yeah 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 i mean i've i've followed this blueprint my entire life <laughs> um so yeah like none of you even know i'm canadian it's yeah <laughs> uh, i kept that
0: yeah I've, n- I've never even seen your face it's uh i don't mm. know what you look like
5: no no i always wear a mask <laughs> It's one of those president masks. Um, So though Zakharov would later claim to have grown up poor, uh, he did not. Uh, That was another lie. His family was comfortably middle class, and he Mm -hmm. attended very good schools. His mother was blind, and after school she made her son repeat all of his lessons for that day to her, uh, which he claimed uh, is how he sharpened his memory. Um, his dad was in the business of importing something called Attar of Roses, uh, which I think is basically a fancy rose-scented essential oil. He had to boil, like, 250 pounds of rose petals to get a single ounce of the liquid. So it was very valuable. Wow. Um, he traveled a lot for work, and his family traveled with him. One of Zaharov's, uh, sisters was born in England, and the time abroad gave him an early experience with foreign languages and cultures. So he again, lies about the number of languages he can speak the rest of his life and says it's like 14 or something ridiculous, but he was a a polyglot um, and he, he gets experience around the world from a young age. So there are rumors that when Zaharov was young, a wealthy family offered to pay his tuition to an English school in the capital. Um, These rumors usually end with allegations of that wealthy family's Masonic connections because Hmm. this guy shows up in a lot of conspiracy theories. You'll find him in a lot of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, even though he was not Jewish, um, because a lot of people are convinced he was Jewish because he was an arms dealer that, spoilers, (sighs) helped lead the world into World War War I. So yeah, that's a fun one.
0: Oh, no. Yeah. Sounds like these other people have to work through their issues.
5: <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're any kind of uh important and any kind of shady racists will decide that you must secretly be Jewish. Um yeah. Cool, um, cool, cool. It is cool. It that's exactly <laughs> what it is, Teresa. It's it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> Um, So, yeah, there's rumors that, like, yeah, this wealthy Masonic family paid for him to go to a fancy school for shady reasons. The reality is that he probably attended this English school in Constantinople for free because all of the English schools in the city were run by churches. um, And people didn't like the churches because they were Muslim and not Christian. um, And so the churches were always empty and would give free schooling to people just to keep Hmm. them full. So that's probably how he was able to go to a good school. So... Um, Zahirov, uh, nursed an early love of England, uh, regarding it from the beginning as the one nation that could help him establish the kind of career that he wanted to have. Uh, one version of his background suggests that as an adolescent, he made his way over to England and attended a mid-level British boarding school. Um, he claimed the other boys made fun of him for his foreign sounding name, and so he adopted his middle name, Basil, as his mm. new first name. Uh, he also says that he learned how to box so he could punch anyone who made fun of him. Oh, no. Um, so that's, yeah, one sounds like of a, a healthy
0: story. way to cope with uh, anger.
5: <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, people make fun of you. You learn how to punch. That's uh, healthy. Yeah, <laughs> that's the word yeah. for it. Did Todd um, Phillips uh, so, write
0: this guy's life? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Robert, that was. I think a joke it was an inspiration for Todd. <laughs> yeah.
5: Yes. Yeah. This is. This is actually. This is like the opposite of that story. <laughs> okay. Cool. <laughs> cool, is, uh, cool.
0: Sorry, I'm totally distracting um, you. Okay.
5: Yeah. So there are some reasons to believe this version of the story um, because he did know a lot about English culture and, like, knew a lot about boarding school culture in England. But, like, people who later, like, looked through the records of all of those schools, uh, there's, like, no evidence that he actually attended any of them. Mm. Um, The other more legendary version of this guy's life story is that when he was an adolescent, his family fell on hard times, and he was forced to take to the streets of Constantinople to hustle his way to get enough money to pay for an education. Um, these rumors will claim that he worked as a brothel tout. Was the term at the time? Do you know what a brothel tout is?
0: Uh, I can guess. Is it a guy who goes... Is it like a person who barks people into a brothel? Like, hey, yeah. quick, we got a we got sex tonight. Come on in. You No nailed cover, it. sex, <laughs> like that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, you nail.
5: That's exactly what it wow. is. Wow. Yeah, I should um, do that. You know a lot about brothels. Yeah.
0: <laughs> they have people. That's. What if that's so sad if I barking into comedy shows is like the worst thing. And then to do it for yeah. a brothel sounds just like, do they need that? I feel like people like sex, right?
5: Yeah, but they don't always know where the mm, sex true, is, right? True. And they don't and know like, what time it's happening. Maybe there's a lot of it's competition. like, oh, what time yeah. do the
0: doors open for the sex? you got to oh, know? Oh, fucking yeah. now? You don't oh, want to great. come early, yeah. you know, and for, you know, that was not meant to be a pun, but that now it is. Okay. No, but it was, yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, so, so he was a brothel tout. Uh,
5: yeah, so he's a brothel tout. And, like, y- you'll find a lot of, like, kind of poorly written and poorly researched articles about him that will claim he got to start as a pimp. And it's just because people d- haven't heard of a brothel tout. Mm. Like, it was way lower level than a pimp. Like, he was not getting a cut of these girls' money. He was getting paid to basically stand on the street and shout out the prices of different women in the brothel. Um. you can fuck this but yeah it's a, a dollar to I don't know I don't know what brothel <laughs> know. prices were like in Constantinople I hope it's more than in the that. 1800s <laughs> I don't know I mean that was a lot of money back then sure hard working person ought to be able to afford a brothel <laughs> mm-hmm. Um. so yeah, uh, it was the kind of job that probably would have made a lot of sense for someone like Basil, um, because he was very cultured, um, he spoke a lot of languages, uh, he was very charming, tall and handsome, he's the kind of person you would want to be doing that job. Um, okay. He was good at talking people into things. Um, we, he worked as a money changer, too, uh, and as a tourist guide, but he didn't find his first true calling until he got involved in the noble profession of firefighting. Oh, now okay. That sounds like a, it's normally a great thing to do, right, working as a firefighter, mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the most noble professions you can embark upon. Um, that was not his job in the fire department. <laughs> um, his job was starting fires. What? Um, so <laughs> in this period of time, the Constantinople Fire Brigade um, was basically a mafia. And in order oh, to no. make money, they would burn down the houses of rich people and then basically solicit bribes to go get their valuables out. So they'd be wow. like, oh, your house is on fire. That's a shame. Be good if somebody went in there and rescued your nice <sighs> shit. And, what? like, get paid. And it, yeah,
0: Dang. it's pretty cool. That's dark. I mean. Were firefighters I mean, not um, provided? Like, were these bribes the way, no. like, like, you bribe police, but it's, not, it's still shady? Or were firefighters... The type, like private industry where you have to uh, pay them to come, like a plumber. No, no, these
5: were public. Wow, these could you were imagine if they privatized the fire was, industry? Yeah, yeah, this would happen again. That's, that's why you don't do yeah, that? Yeah,
0: that's the
6: thing that's that with all the fires that were going mm. on in California, like rich people right. hired fire firefighters. Yeah.
5: Oh, damn. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is like there's a long history of this. Like uh, Marcus Licinius Crassus, who was a, a Roman and one of the like considered to be like the, one of the wealthiest men in the ancient world. Um, made a lot of his fortune by o- operating the fire department in ancient Rome, which was a private enterprise and charging people while their houses were on fire to put the fires wow. out. Um, yeah. So like, this is like a, like fire, like running firefighting like companies was like a thing that you would do if you were a real piece of shit for a very long time. Cause like the governments didn't do fuck all. Yeah. It's awesome.
0: Who.
5: But his job, so Basil was not putting out fires. He would start them. Okay. Um, Which is like the easiest part of that gig, really. Like, I think I would have been very good at this job. Um, (laughs) Yeah. In 1865, a major fire tore through Constantinople, destroying 8,000 homes, 20 mosques, five churches, and numerous businesses. Roughly a quarter of the city was burned down. 20,000 people were rendered homeless, and an unknown number were killed. The Ottoman government responded with a vicious crackdown, arresting and trying and hanging numerous perpetrators. Hmm. It is impossible to know if Zaharov had anything to do with this, but his friends on the fire brigade later noted that he fled the city immediately afterwards and stayed away for five full years.
0: Seems guilty. Um,
5: (laughs) Maybe. So here's the thing. There's again, as I said, there's different versions of all of this, and it's entirely possible that he fled the city because he committed a totally different series of crimes. Mm. Mm-hmm. True, because he was, a, yeah, always criming. Um, <laughs> and I'm going to read you to you about what those crimes were uh, okay. in this quote from the book "Man of Arms," which is a biography of Zaharov. In his late teens, it is generally accepted, a maternal uncle, Sebastopolis, offered him a job in his cloth business in the busy Galata district by the port. The merchant was delighted with his astute and aspiring relation, and for two or three years, everything went well. Then, suddenly and mysteriously, the young man vanished, and for several years all trace of his career vanished with him, conveniently creating one of those vacuums in his life which legend so avidly filled. One tale had it that he absconded with his uncle's cash, was caught, and sent to a prison from which he made his escape. It was even hinted that he had taken the life of a warder, of a guard in this bid the least sensational view was that he had committed some misdemeanor but had managed to flee abroad with the proceeds to embark on a new career under another name so
0: Hmm.
5: either he got in trouble for burning down a quarter of the city and (laughs) had to flee um, or he stole all of his uncle's money and had to flee and it's also possible that he went to jail for stealing his uncle's money and then murdered a cop and had to flee (laughs) All of those things are possible. We don't know which is true. Or any of them. It might have been something totally different. That's the frustrating thing about writing about this guy. Um, Yeah, it's like really impossible to know what actually happened. And Basil himself only deepened the mystery by saying shit like this to interviewers later in life. Quote, I have been lucky all my life. If I hadn't been, I should have been murdered long ago or else serving a life sentence in some prison. Hmm. Um, So he he would drop little lines like that just to keep the mystery alive. (laughs) Um,
0: so there's some buried bodies in his past that have not been found.
5: There were there are a lot of buried bodies in his past that everybody saw because that's kind mm-hmm. of the benefit of being an arms dealer is you can get a lot of people buried and you're just doing your job. True. So, yeah.
0: He's just boosting those Q4 numbers, you know?
5: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel yeah, like, his I feel Q4 like numbers.
0: Here just for me because all her jokes are <laughs> killing me. <laughs> Robert, why aren't you as funny as Teresa? I I think it's because he's on a screen, so then I feel more compulsion to say things, but then they feel more, um, what's it called, non sequitur, so I will, (laughs) and then Sophie's across from me, so she's (laughs) laughing at me. But I am paying, I'm paying rapt attention, Robert. You're paying
5: very close attention, that's
0: good. So, so he lied, Okay. And uh, we don't all, know e- what he Everything
5: did. he ever said is a lie. Okay. And we don't know what he did. These are the different stories. He may have been a, a prostitute barker and then an <laughs> arsonist uh, who fled <laughs> the country. He may have stolen all of his uncle's money, might have murdered a cop. Who knows? <laughs> By the early 1870s, though, we know that Zaharov had made it to Great Britain, and we know this to a point of certainty because he almost immediately got arrested <laughs> in a massive legal trouble over mm. there, and there are thankfully court records, so this is the shit we absolutely know happened. During his travels to England, he met a young woman named Emily Burroughs, who was the daughter of a Bristol-based businessman. And depending on which version of history you believe, Basil was either living off money stolen from his uncle or living there off money given to him for commodity speculation by a number of businesses back in Constantinople. Either way, when he meets this woman, Emily, he succeeds in passing himself off as a very wealthy foreign man, which he was not. <laughs> um, but he was charming, and he had a nice suit, and no one had the Internet, so he was able to get away with Yeah, these lies. Uh, Emily falls in love with Basil. Uh, He proposed to her, and in short order, the couple were married in Paris. They quickly returned back to England to repeat the marriage ceremony in front of her family. Years later, Emily's niece, Henriette, recalled that this second ceremony was, quote, planned in a great rush. My aunt seemed agitated about something. She wanted to wait a little longer, but Basilius was pressing her to marry him. Mm. So Anthony Alfre, one of Basil's biographers, suspects that she might have been nervous because she hadn't told her parents about the first marriage that they'd had in Paris. Mm. But it's also possible that she'd started to suspect that her new beau might be a con artist because he absolutely (laughs) was. On the marriage register, he listed his name as Zacharias Gortzikoff, which was a (laughs) reference to Prince Michael Gortzikoff of Russia. So he was claiming to be a Russian prince (laughs) to this woman. That's why he's, yeah, yeah. Um... He claimed that his dad, a rose oil salesman, was a high-ranking Russian general, um, and Basil himself claimed to be a general. And it's entirely possible that Emily didn't even know that her new husband had, like, grown up in Constantinople and believed him to be a full-blooded member of the Russian nobility. (laughs) For his part, Basil's interest in Emily probably had less to do with love than real estate. She was four years older than him, and her wealthy father was somewhat desperate to marry her off, so he'd set her up in a fashionable apartment right off of Belgrave Square in Bristol. Now, Basil was very much taken with her high-class home, and he wanted to live there himself. Unfortunately, once the two were wed, Emily's father started pushing for them to move back to the family home in the country. Basil resisted this because he was marrying this woman for her nice apartment. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, yeah, for a little while, they lived very well together in that nice apartment. Um, But that was not to last very long. And in a little bit, Teresa, I'm Uh going to tell you what happened next, how Zaharov got arrested, and how his first time in court went. But first, you know who won't lie to women and claim to be a Russian prince?
0: Who? Raytheon.
5: (laughs) Raytheon. No, they will make a missile that's nothing but knives to assassinate people in <laughs> Afghanistan and Yemen, but they will not pretend to be a Russian prince to romance mm. a
0: don't get that wealthy British ideas. woman.
5: I mean, they would if they could, but <laughs> Raytheon is notoriously bad at faking a Russian accent. That's one thing everyone knows. So uh, we're off to ads. Uh there Here we go. <laughs> Say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills, and unexpected overages. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month, go to mintmobile.com behind. That's mintmobile.com behind. Cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com behind. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan, additional Taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. We're back. The podcast returns. The ads are done. So, um, I'm going to read another quote from the book Man at Arms about the early days of uh, Basil's ill-fated marriage to Miss Emily. Um, Quote, in Hill Street they remained, the bogus boyer Miss Greenslade recalled, who is uh, this woman's, like, niece years later, accompanying himself on the piano and entertaining his wife and her niece with talk of life on the steps and the gay goings-on in the court of St. Petersburg. The idol lasted little more than a month. Then, scenting trouble, perhaps alerted by news from Constantinople, Zaharov. Uh, Persuaded his wife that it was imperative they leave the country. He gave the impression that he was engaged in important diplomatic missions for the Russian government and had acquired enemies who, abetted by the police, were on his tail. Accompanied always by the the woman relating the story, this woman's niece, they moved to Brussels where they were royally treated. But unfortunately for Zaharov and his new bride the news of a wedding between this Russian prince and the high society Englishwoman had made international news and businessmen in Constantinople who'd sent him over to England to make investments were really pissed to see this guy that they knew was a Greek businessman living the high life in England pretending to be a Russian prince so these people he stole from basically <laughs> see him in the paper and are like that's not a fucking Russian prince um yeah, so these businessmen had sent uh, Zaharov over to England with about 7,000 pounds in merchandise and securities, which was somewhere in the ballpark of one and a half million US dollars. Wow. Yeah, so he stole, steals a lot from these people. Um, they immediately sent a representative over to London to file charges, which is why Zaharov had felt the need to flee Britain in the first place. Uh, unfortunately for him, England and Belgium had just signed one of the world's first extradition treaties, and <laughs> Prince Zaharov quickly became the very first person arrested and extradited under so that's cool yeah breaking new ground now the new princess his new wife was not happy with this but Zaharov assured her it was all a terrible misunderstanding just a case of mistaken identity and promised he would take care of it very quickly if only her wealthy father would help him with some of the legal bills in the short term while he put matters to right and got in touch with his royal family members back in Russia in December, he went to court, charged with stealing 28 cases of gum and 109 bags of gall, what? along with a theft of seven. Yeah.
0: That's not what I expected him to have stolen. Yeah
5: yeah he stole like these were like products they sent over as like samples that he took with him and just sold in england along with seven thousand pounds worth of securities Mm -hmm. Uh, upon arrest he had been found with the securities in the form of 24 turkish bonds and a loaded revolver Uh, the court asked basil if he was often in the habit of traveling with thousands of dollars of other people's money and a loaded gun he assured them that he had been traveling with a revolver regularly since the age of seven um, which is a weird thing to brag to a court about (laughs) Like, do That's you always have comforting? stolen money and guns? Yeah. That's
0: yeah, like, man, a, I've don't, that oh, don't worry. I I've, had, I've had a gun yeah. since I was a child, so you don't have to worry.
5: Yeah. Yeah. No, no. I, I got a gun when I was a baby. It's fine. Yeah, don't, don't, don't freak <laughs> out. Um, and there's a court artist depiction of him giving his deposition, and mm-hmm. it's pretty fucking great. Um, I, I'm going to have Sophie show it to you now so you can get a look at how the court artist lo- thought of this guy.
0: Okay. Let's see it. It looks like he was, like, in a therapist's office. Yeah. He's
5: very... Yeah, I thin. mean, he's...
0: It's weird. Yeah. That mustache,
6: His waist
5: though. is very thin. His mustache and, like, beard are, like, pointed and, like, very... He's like got a very,
6: Captain Hook vibe.
5: Yeah. Kind of like a cross between Captain Hook and a New Yorker caricature of a <laughs> fancy British person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So... Uh, there are, again, two stories as to how this whole court case was resolved. Zaharoff would go to his grave claiming that he settled the matter in court when he found a lost letter from his uncle, the head of the firm that had hired him, stating that he should take the bond money as payment for his travel expenses and services rendered. Um, And it does seem to be true that the aggrieved party who sued him uh, was his uncle, but the rest of the story is probably a lie. (laughs) Court records note that Prince Zaharov was declared guilty of embezzlement, but only sentenced to pay about 100 pounds in fines. This is likely because he agreed to pay restitution to the people he'd robbed, or rather, he got his new wife to pay back the people he'd stolen Hmm. from. Uh, His biographer notes, quote, all that is clear is that Zaharov had made a promise of at least partial restitution, and there is little doubt parental indulgence so recently overtaxed of its probable source. Miss Zakharov, the late Princess Gortzakov uh, Niboros, so like his 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 wife who was pretending like using the name Gortzakov, which was the <laughs> fake name that this guy used. Um, this and her husband's legal expenses, according to her niece, uh, swallowed up her aunt's money. Um, so basically, he has her pay the pay back the people he stole from, so he hmm. gets to keep the money. Um, And then as soon as he's released from jail, he flees England and abandons his wife. uh, And, yeah, also abandons the continents. Uh, Well, yeah, I mean, you're not really a grifter if you don't abandon at least one wife. (laughs) Yeah.
0: It's crazy that she, I feel like she almost got out of it before they, or you said she had doubts before the second marriage. Yeah,
5: it seems like that, that she was starting to realize this guy was shady. Um, And then it's almost she had to
0: just keep going because it's like, well, at this point, I'm a, I yeah. better to just see it through.
5: <laughs> the sunk cost fallacy is applied uh-huh. to romance. Yeah, <laughs> it, it makes fools of us all. So um, now, obviously today, if you've got a grifter who gets in trouble in one country and caught in a grift and tried in court, you're going to flee to Mexico. That's just where you're going <laughs> to go if you're a grifter in the modern era. But Mexico was not the place for grifters in the late 1800s, and so instead— uh, Prince Zaharov left for the United States, which oh, okay.
4: is,
0: Great. was
5: the the Mexico of the 1800s, <laughs> um, in terms of being a place for grifters to go and absolutely be able to get away with anything. So yeah, he gets on a boat, fucks off to North America. He never divorced Emily. He basically just abandoned her to her family after taking all of their money. Um, so uh, yeah, that's that's cool. Well, sorry, I, sh- I should say he went to <laughs> Cyprus. Cool. Like, yeah, it's it's cool stuff. Um. So yeah, it, like, it's very complicated. This guy's like the, mm-hmm. the 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 the, mo- the movements this guy goes through. But after like some time in North America, he goes to Cyprus, this tiny Grecian island, and he founds a business and he starts uh, a series of small enterprises, operating a gradually expanding number of shops and importing exotic foodstuffs. Um, and as his finances gradually improved, he started going back and forth to England again. Um, and he never met with his wife. Um, like, like He, he like would hide from her every time he was back in England on business. Um, by the early 1800s, he took on a few small jobs selling rifles to the Greek government. Um, and he, like, he didn't like at this point really like take up arms dealing as a major trade, but it was certainly something he was willing to do a little bit of. Um, he sold linens too. He catered barracks for the British Army. His company laid down telegraph poles and train tracks. He got involved with shipping and was constantly investing in different markets during his trips to London. He lived pretty well off of this, uh, but his businesses were constantly in one sort of debt or another, and mm. his profits were always in the process of being reinvested into a new enterprise. He hatched a scheme to get the British government to let him run the development of Cyprus, which they controlled thanks to a shaky treaty deal with Russia and the Ottoman Empire. Wait, uh, he had the apart. government
0: let him cre- develop this island? How he, he was that's... trying
5: to. Wow. He was trying to. He A failed. Lot of power. At it. Um, so England was kind of like in control of Cyprus due to these like weird series of political events, and he was trying to get them to like develop the island and let him run it, um, but that didn't end up working. Um, neither did a series of, like, business ventures in Alexandria and then France and then back to the Mediterranean coast, um, and trying to keep track of all, uh, his businesses and plots in this period is, like, impossible. Um, there's just so much shit going on and, like, so much doubt about it. What matters is that he was a serial entrepreneur. He's one of these guys mm-hmm. that always has an angle, always has a business he's trying, always has an investment going on, um, And yeah, he was successful enough at this that he was able to dress well and live comfortably and put on the image of being wealthy, but he was also always on the edge of disaster and always (laughs) had most of his assets invested into the next big thing. Um, Have you seen uh, Uncut Gems? No. This reminds me of that movie. Yeah? How so?
0: He's just constantly, Adam Sandler's character is like constantly... Just like getting in higher stakes gambling debt, and he'll like finally get it back to pay someone, but instead of paying it back, he's like, "I'm gonna gamble this on this new game, and then I'll make even more, and yo, we'll both get paid." And he's just doing it more and more, and then at the end, well, I won't give it away, but you know, oh, gambling. Cool. Yeah, that's... you can you can assume that it's how gambling happens. What happens when you? Gamble? Yeah. Generally this stuff. is kind of
5: that story, but it, it it for him when he he gambles too much it helps start World War One. Mm. Um, so a little <laughs> bit more high stakes. Wow.
0: Okay. So we're going there. Okay. Cool.
5: Yeah. That's where this shit goes. <laughs> um, so Basil built a reputation as a man of scandal, um, and he left behind a constant stream of sobbing women and outraged families. <laughs> Um, I'm going to read you now a letter that he sent while he was in a hotel in Paris to one of his business partners. And this letter kind of gives you some insight into the way he conducted his relationships. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's talking in this about like two women he met at the hotel and, and slept with. Quote, uh, Miss Jeherin, whom I was fool enough to poke a few times immediately oh, after my arrival no. at the hotel, had her knife in me, and Miss McCraith for my giving her up with the latter. You appear to be under the impression that Miss McCraith was divorced and I might marry her. You were wrong. I would not do so if she had millions. I poked her because it was my caprice. I poke her still, and when I want to change, I shall give her up. I am under no obligations to her or her family, as she costs me what an average whore would do, and I pay her in one way or another, and I have no doubt that if another man chose to court her and pay for it he could have her if he paid more than me and she would turn me up so this is the guy way this guy Ooh, talks about this women. guy started yeah. the red
6: pill oh my god <laughs>
5: yeah he's he's pretty gross poke. so shortly after wow yeah poke that's the yeah, I, f- didn't that poke. Was, I didn't even realize that was
0: i don't know people were it just yeah. seems very current to be like i poked her mm,
5: yeah you know? it's weird to hear in like an eight you expect people to be like i uh i don't know what's a fancy way to say fuck Uh, I lay with, you know, Mm. stooped. (laughs) That's not fancy at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So Mm -hmm. shortly after writing this, Zaharov fell ill. Uh, He was diagnosed with anemia, and it's impossible to know what ailment he actually had because 1870s medicine was basically drunk guessing. His description of his doctor's orders for how to treat this ailment is entertaining, though. Quote, Mm -hmm. I am to avoid the least excitement, to take gentle exercise and avoid all stares. And if I want to kill myself, I am to have a woman. This last is strictly enforced. I am to give up women altogether and, in fact, avoid them so as to not get excited. His doctor says he's got to stop fucking after he gets oh, sick.
0: Oh, it's a dick disease. He probably got an STD. Because they were like, oh, if they said have. he can't, he can't get excited, not because of the heart, but because of his dick. Because it, it has his to dick's do with women, right? Up.
5: Yeah. So maybe that, his that, dick that, that burns, not... and he, when it yeah. gets hard, it hurts. Might have gotten some of that chlamydia's. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. He got now poke. No poke disease. Yeah, he was poking too much, and his doctor said he had to stop it with the poking so whatever illness actually affected him Basil Zaharoff eventually recovered uh, and continued his unsuccessful bouncing around the Mediterranean in search of a big score by 1884 he'd given up on this quest and decided to take leave of the continent for good and try his luck in the United States of America Um, and I'm not going to kill myself by giving you an itemized list of every con and legitimate business that he dipped his fingers into the Smithsonian Magazine gives a pretty good overview of Basil's uh, time in the United States Quote, it appears that he was the Count Zaharov, who in Utah in 1884 claimed to be in possession of four black diamonds that played a celebrated part in the Turco-Russian War, and who a year later caused a small scandal in Missouri by associating it with the m- notorious Madame Pearl Clifford, one of the most beautiful soiled doves ever known in St. Louis, While working as a superintendent of a local railway sleeping car company. He was certainly the Count Zaharov, who, hastily promoting himself to the eminence of Prince Zacharias Basilius Zaharov, married the New York heiress Jeannie Billings for her 150 Fifty thousand dollars and her expectations later in 1885 so he bounces around like sells like like gets involved in some sort of scheme pretending that he has like these historic diamonds um like runs a railway sleeping car company at some point like he's just constantly involved in these like weird little get rich quick schemes um and then he marries this new york heiress uh and steals her money um so yeah yeah, um, he 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 definitely has a pattern, um, and I found an like a, a quote from the Omaha Daily Bee, um, like an article at the time, like written about him at the time, uh, that describes his modus operandi during this period. Quote. He maintained a high social position by means of letters from prominent society people, which purported to be genuine, and had a library full of documents which he claimed were written to him by European dignitaries. He claimed to be a nephew of Prince Gorchakov, and told a remarkable story of his banishment by the Tsar. At one point he created a considerable commotion among the set here, in which he moved by threatening to go abroad and fight a duel with a Prussian prince who dared to insult his mother. So... (sighs) It's the same kind of lie. Like, I mean, there's mm-hmm. no internet. So you just go over to America and just try a new set of lies on a new set of people. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, it's almost
0: like the bigger the lie, the less, like, he thinks, like, the less likely. It's like you think, like, oh, someone wouldn't lie about something that big. Like, you could easily find yeah. out if he was a prince. So it can't be a lie. So let's not look into it at all.
5: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, well, if he was a prince, we would know that if he wasn't really a prince, it would be yeah, obvious that would he was someone say was saying he's not a prince. Yeah. I I do feel like in that period of time in America, if you had an accent that was vaguely European, most people would believe that you were royalty.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
5: As long as long as you wore a suit,
0: I think even like when I studied abroad with uh, uh, in college, it was like the girls went crazy for accents. It's like you know, just have an accent, you could still be a bad bad person. They could still be mean to you, but they're like no, the the European no. accent, they're perfect and you know can do no yeah. wrong. Better than American men. That,
5: yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can get away with anything if you have the right kind of British accent. (laughs) If you have the wrong kind of British accent, you can't get away with anything. Um, Real crapshoot being English. So, um, yeah, Basil's scamming in America worked out well for a while, but as always, he was eventually found out. Uh, This time it was by a Philadelphia businessman who happened across another newspaper article announcing... Uh, his marriage in New York like that this woman in New York was getting married to this Russian prince Uh Um, so this wedding between the Russian prince and a wealthy socialite was once again big news Uh, and unfortunately for Basil the businessman who came across this was originally from Bristol and was like Hmm. didn't I read a news article about a Russian prince marrying a rich woman and then that guy got arrested for like stealing a shitload of money um So this guy reaches out to Basil's first wife over in England, and her family starts an international manhunt to arrest this bigamist. (laughs) Um, And, yeah, so Basil has to flee the United States uh, for, again, so he's now fled two countries um, for marrying rich women and stealing their money while pretending (laughs) to be a Russian prince. Um, But he got out just ahead of the authorities. Uh, He managed to make it back to Europe as the law was closing in on him. Um, He left behind his wife and a pile of debts once again. And by 1885, Mm. he was back in the Balkans working for an old employer of his named Thorsten Nordenfelt. Now – Nordenfeld ran a sizable arms company. Uh, so he was a weapons manufacturer. Uh, and he was one of a number of up and coming businesses that were selling ever deadlier guns to the armies of Europe. Nordenfeld had employed Basil as a salesman briefly back in 1877, but the two had fallen out of touch over the years uh, as Basil had fucked and scammed his way across <laughs> multiple continents. But now that Zaharov was back and looking for work, Nordenfeld Arms seemed as good a place to make money as any. And it's here we should talk a little bit about the global armaments industry. um It didn't really exist for most of history. Mm-hmm. Early firearms were like artisanal tools, each one was made by hand by like an artisan um and so like you couldn't really have gigantic gun companies in the same way you do now because you needed okay. like some some dude who like was mass good at manufacturing guns. yeah, it wasn't really possible with like early arms um no, some firearms makers were like, larger and more successful and like hired a lot of these artisans, but like international arms conglomerates the way we know them did not exist at the time, which is a shame because it means that the good people of the late 1800s couldn't enjoy the fine <laughs> products that the Raytheon Corporation makes, like that knife missile I told you about. I bet there's a thousand <laughs> things you could use a knife missile for, Teresa. If I'm you not, had a knife missile, I'm more missile, of an artisanal
0: weapons it? person. You know, I like to get my weapons at the farmers market. I just think I like to look someone in the eyes when I'm buying a killing machine. You know, I want to be like I want to know that hands. You know, I want to touch the hands that that made it. I like twine guns. You know. <laughs> oh yeah, hemp. Yeah. Uh... That makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> guns made of farm
5: to table drones yeah yeah Yeah. yeah. like
0: my farm to table drones (laughs) yeah excuse me where these drones free range um (laughs) i want my drones to be played classical music while they're being made
5: yeah i I, only local bullets i am not going to like (laughs) yeah i i'm not i don't want to murder the environment just these uh, random people people i've decided are my enemies (laughs) yeah well If you enjoy artisanal killing machines, then you'll enjoy the fine products and services that support this podcast. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table.
3: I want to be remembered
1: for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th.
2: LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. We're back.
5: So... Talking about the arms industry uh, Mm -hmm. in the late 1800s, Uh, I'm going to read a quote from Smithsonian Magazine kind of laying out the state of the industry at the time. Uh, It was not then a huge industry. Best known was perhaps Alfred Krupp, the... uh, Cannon maker of Essen. At 10, he inherited a modest iron foundry from the old Frederick Krupp, who had started it in 1823. At 14, Alfred went into the business and slowly took over its direction. Cannon were made of copper. Alfred perfected a solid crucible steel block from which he made cannon, but he had not yet perfected any projectile capable of penetrating the intransigent mentality of military bureaucrats. Cannon were made of copper, had always been, it must always be. Herr Krupp learned from the start that the way to sell cannon to the Prussian king was to sell them also to Prussia's neighbors and enemies. Mm. He made his first sales to Egypt, then to Austria. When the Austro-Prussian war began, both armies fired Krupp's cannonballs at each other. And his guns would have been working in both armies in the Franco-Prussian war, but for Napoleon III's refusal to buy them. Krupp's cannon made Bismarck's swift victory possible. Um, So this is like the first big armed manufacturer is Krupp. Um, and by the mid 1800s, like the industry was starting to grow, in part because of Krupp. Um, modern firearms made by companies like Winchester and Martini had also started to sweep Winchester, into the world's wars. Bay Area. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Bay Area <laughs> company. See, shoot, That's, shoot. Local. Right, that
0: house is right by Winchester Mystery House. Shout out to San Jose. Is right by where my parents yeah. live.
5: Shout out to San Jose and if if you're in California and you're going to kill people, make sure it's with a Winchester rifle. Yeah, that's no, important. No.
0: No. Don't don't listen to that. Robert, for fuck's sake. <laughs> Just don't kill people. Cool. <laughs>
5: But if you do kill local, Robert, you know? Robert. That's, as a Texan, I use Raytheon Mm-mm. because it's made outside of Plano, Texas. So I know that if I'm gonna drone strike somebody, I'm gonna drone strike them with a drone made right down the road by the same artisans that I uh, I meet in line at the Trader Joe's before they go build missile guidance systems. That's good, you know. Mm. It's like uh, yeah,
0: keep keep killing local. That's what we want mm-hmm. in our community.
5: Yeah, kill local. Well, no. Kill- uh, this is too too dark a line of. Oh, no,
0: <laughs> Just... don't don't do um, that.
5: <laughs> So, yeah, like, the, the American Civil War had a big impact on, like, the growth of the arms industry at this time. Because, like, we start to make, like, you start to see mass-produced weapons that are, like, way deadlier than guns had ever been before. And suddenly all these these nations in Europe start wanting to buy them. Um, there's fighting in, between Greece and Russia and Serbia and Turkey and the Balkans. And, like, this spreads the development of new cannons and new firearms and spreads their adoption by the armies of Europe. Um, so, Yeah. Uh, this is kind of the state of the industry in 1885 uh, when basil gets involved in it so like it is starting to explode but you're still at this point where like the idea of massive international arms companies is kind of weird and new mm-hmm. um, and Zaharov was initially commissioned to act as the Nordenfeld arms corporate representative for the Balkans uh, he received five pounds a week in salary plus commissions basil being an entrepreneur and in- instantly realized that selling a handful of guns at a time to a single country was not going to earn him the kind of money he desired to make. So taking a leaf out of Krupp's book, he decides that he should start selling guns by triggering arms races. That like this is the way to make fucking money if you're gonna if you want to sell a lot of guns, you make an arms race. Um, Mm. Nordenfelt was not a large manufacturer, but they traded in some very novel weapon systems, including a brand new submarine that had just been invented. Now submarines were really new at the time and they weren't very well understood and they usually killed the people inside of them. You, you wouldn't want to be a submarine person in this time. Okay. Um, but they were also, like, this the new sexy weapon system. Like uh, So they represented a huge opportunity because, like, no one really had them yet. Um, and here's how the biography of Man of Arms uh, describes what Basil did next. Quote, Many years later, Zaharov recounted his part in opening up this market. I sold a submarine to the Greeks, and then, he added with a conventional chuckle, I went to the Turks and sold them a couple. Russia presented the next obvious target. From a less reliable source, we learned that Zaharov, with bland impudence, expounded the situation as he saw it to the Navy minister in St. Petersburg. My firm is the agent of no one power. The Turks have brought two submarines from my firm. In the event of war, the Turkish Navy can, thanks to these submarines, minish your ships in the Black Sea and strike you where you least expect them. What the Turks possess, you too can have. And greater numbers, if you wish. I propose Mm -hmm. that while two submarines are sufficient for the local needs of a small power like Turkey, four should be necessary for your own security as a great power. Legend Mm -hmm. relates that Russia fell for this logic. This would have made a total of seven submarines, which is a a lot of money for him. So he Mm -hmm. sparks like a minor submarine arms race between three countries.
0: He's like a high school girl that's like trying to start drama where you go up to like one, two best friends. and You're like, oh, I heard so-and-so. I heard Becky, you know, say that she doesn't like you. And then they're like, oh, Becky's a bitch. And then you go to Becky and you're like, I heard Kelsey, blah, blah. And now they're like fighting, but they weren't if it wasn't for him.
5: I mean, that makes me think that teenage girls would actually be incredible arms dealers
0: i think teenage girls would make excellent um, uh, intelligence officers because all of the cia and intelligence companies companies you know organizations do is they're just gossiping that's all they're doing they're meeting up to exchange secrets and uh, make little alliances and we should use teenage well no let's never mind I take that back. Let's not use teenage girls for anything. But um, let's well, you harness know, the their CIA power. the CIA does
5: listen to this podcast a lot, so maybe <laughs> yeah. they'll take you up on that. Yeah, harnessing teenage girls.
0: Harness some teenage girls, not literally. Not
5: so. Yeah. The submarines that Zaharov. Sold were notoriously shitty and basically death traps. Um, and they were okay. they were renowned as being death traps by the standards of late 1800s submarines. Hmm. So like in the era where all submarines are death traps, everyone's like, "But don't get in those fucking submarines because they're <laughs> terrible." Um, but he makes a lot of money selling them. Um, so, uh, this, this fact that he sold seven submarines and got a cut of the commissions, obviously, uh, generated him a tidy profit and turned him instantly into one of the most influential minds within the Nordenfelt Arms Company. Zaharov basically coined this codified his strategy of selling arms to one country, to panic another, to then panic another mm. so he could sell arms to them all. Uh, he, he he came to like basically turn this into like he called it the system Zaharov. So he like he like names this thing he did to spark arms races. Like the Sistine like he, chapel? Like, Is that what? Uh no, like system with an e at the oh, end.
0: Oh oh oh. Like I
5: see. the the Zakar the Zaharov system. naming like it he, like a
0: masterpiece.
5: No, it's he is kind of naming it like a masterpiece. He's like, when he goes into corporate meetings, he's like, mm. the thing you got to do is spark an arms race. That's how you fucking make mm. bank with this shit. And like, I'm the guy who invented it, even though he's kind of stealing that from Krupp. Because he's, <laughs> you know, a scammer. Um, so having cornered the Mediterranean submarine market, Zaharov next set his sights on a more ambitious goal, the European machine gun industry. Hiram Maxim, the American arms maker who invented the Babe Ruth of weaponry meant to kill large numbers of European teenagers, had just arrived on the continent. Maxim was demonstrating his new quick-firing Maxim gun, which worried Nordenfelt since their own quick-firing gun was really shitty. Zaharov knew at once that Maxim's single-barreled machine gun was way better than the one that Nordenfelt made. And in the tradition of all great businessmen, he decided that if you can't beat him, join him. No one is 100% certain how Basil convinced Hiram Maxim to merge his company with Nordenfelt. But H.G. Wells wrote out one of the explanations of this. So this is H.G. Wells talking about how uh, uh, Zahirov achieved this coup. Quote, Maxim exhibited his gun in Vienna. When he fired his gun at a target and demonstrated its power, Zaharov was busy explaining to expert observers that the whole thing was an exhibition of skill, that only Maxim could fire the gun. It would take years to train men to use it, that these new machines were delicate and difficult to make and could not be produced in quantities and so forth. Maxim, after tracing the initials of the emperor upon a target, prepared to receive orders. They were not forthcoming. He learned that Nordenfelt was simple and strong. This gun of his was a scientific instrument, unfit for soldierly hands. His demonstration went for nothing what had happened he realized he was vis-a-vis with a salesman a very formidable salesman in the end he amalgamated with the salesman so zahiroff is like i can't beat this guy's gun so i'll lie to everyone about him until he realizes he's basically just got to work with me otherwise he's not going to succeed in selling any guns
0: that's such a classic manipulation move because he's like that gun sucks don't buy that gun and then once they join he's like now i have your gun and now he's like it's good again it's now we're selling it, so it's yeah. Good. No, no, this is the
5: best gun. Super easy to use. You can kill so many teenagers with this gun. If you want to kill teenage British people, this is the gun, Robert. So, what? Stop. That it killed so many teenage British people. This is World War One, Sophie. Yes, but but don't say if you want to. <laughs> I mean, I'm saying out of this
0: uh, domestic
6: dispute.
5: If you want to kill the most European conscript soldiers possible. You want a Maxim machine gun. And they do sponsor this podcast.
6: Jesus.
4: Robert.
5: So this happened in 1886. And over the next <laughs> couple of years, Nordenfelt himself increasingly bowed out of the company he'd founded while Basil Zaharov took control of much of the enterprise. And it's hard to overstate what a big deal this is. So Maxim Nordenfelt Arms quickly becomes Maxim. Um, like like it's just known by the name Maxim, um mm. because their gun is like the is, is like the defining weapon of the age. Um, and Maxim, under Zaharov becomes one of the very, very first massive international gun companies, uh, international arms companies, uh, and they sold a huge variety of weapons to parties in multiple hemispheres. The additional reach the merger gave Zaharov meant it was even easier for him to spark arms races all over the world. And I'm going to quote from the Smithsonian again here. The next step was a combination with Vickers, Thomas Vickers, the second largest English manufacturer of arms. Maxim became a member of the Vickers board of directors. Zaharoff's name did not figure into the organization at all, but he and Maxim, in some proportion unknown to history, got for their company from Vickers 1.3 million pounds, or over six and a half million dollars, partly in cash and partly in stock for the Vickers company. Zaharoff thus became a substantial stockholder in Vickers and would one day be the largest of all. He also became the chief salesman of Vickers, which, unlike Krupp and Schneider, had remained up to this point, out of the international market, but Zakharov showed the way in this bountiful field, and therefore he got moving about Europe with a card announcing himself as the delegate of Thomas Vickers and Sons so the period from 1877 to 1914 when he's the the chief representative of like the the big one of probably the biggest arms company in the world was also the period where the world went through the most significant arms buildup that has ever happened Mm. new technologies were being constantly invented and refined and every nation in europe was like worried about fighting every other nation in europe so they all were buying up piles of Maxim guns and Krupp cannons and like all of the weaponry they could possibly get. And Zaharoff himself drove this trend. In 1890, his Vickers guns became the sole supplier of naval weaponry for the British Empire. Uh, they bought a controlling interest in Beardmore's shipbuilding firm in Glasgow, which gave the gigantic arms concern. Uh, Zaharoff managed a cut of the fortune that Britain spent building up her navy. Now, Britain's naval buildup was driven largely by Kaiser Wilhelm's obsessive need to grow the German navy, which was steadily encouraged mm-hmm. by Krupp. So, like, the German arms company Krupp is telling the leader of Germany, like, you got to build more ships, and Basil's being like, Hey, the Germans are building more ships. We got to build more ships, and it just so happens that I get a cut of every ship built. <laughs> so both corporations profited massively from this naval build-up, which also ratcheted up tensions between Imperial Germany and Great Britain.
0: Is this all um, over the world? Before yeah. were planes invented here or is this all via boat? Yeah. Like, okay. So he cuz I'm just imagining like cuz when you say like he went to this country and said this and went to this country, I'm imagining like him getting on a boat Taking a long time to get there, and then being like, yep. here's some gossip. Buy this," th-, and then like getting back on, like it's it's very slow. It's
5: very slow. He's <laughs> not taking planes. There are planes in this period, and he. A little later, we'll talk about how he started convincing countries to buy air forces. How does but one like, transport yeah, travels... a
0: submarine? Like once it's bought, like do, does someone drive it over yeah, to th- Germany?
5: I think they were probably built in the Mediterranean and then just like sailed over to where they were going. Mm, So then it's like delivery day, Amazon delivery.
0: Your U-boats are here. Yeah.
5: Yeah. I mean, Amazon will get a U-boat to you way faster now. (laughs) I mean, they've gotten (laughs) so much better at delivering submarines. Um, So... Um, yeah, uh, do, do, do yeah both Krupp and uh, and uh, Maxim or yeah mm-hmm. uh, profited massively from the naval buildup that just you know also ratcheted up tensions in Europe and got both countries closer to fighting each other. Um, And Zaharoff continued to sell arms to both sides of conflicts and wars all over the world using the cynical tactics of the system he had designed to ensure ever-growing profits while the world lurched closer and closer to cataclysm. Uh, I found a really interesting book called Men of Wealth by a guy named John Flynn that does a good job of illustrating how this web came together. Quote, events favor them. The Spanish-American War, the Chinese-American War, the English Boer War, in which the Tommies, armed with Vickers rifles, were scientifically mowed down with Maxim's machine gun or quick firing cannon, supplied to the Boers by Mr. Zakharov of Vickers. But the greatest opportunity was the Russo-Japanese War. When it ended, all of Europe's war ministries awoke. The war had been a great proving ground for guns and ships, a laboratory for militarists. Above all, Russia had to start at the bottom and completely rebuild her shattered armies. The Tsar provided over $620 million for rearming. All the armament makers in the world flocked to St. Petersburg. Zaharoff, representing Vickers, arrived first on scene. So, like, he's the official arms manufacturer of the British Army, and he's selling guns to the Boers who are murdering British soldiers. Mm. Um, And then he sells a bunch of weapons to the Japanese, who then beat the Russians in a very surprising war. And the fact that Japan, this, like, third-rate power in the eyes of Europeans, beats Russia in this war leads to all these nations buying even more guns because they're like, oh, shit, Japan can do that stuff to Russia. They might be able to do it to us. we got to buy more weapons. And the Russians are like, we need to buy way more fucking weapons. So, like... He's very successful in getting everybody to continue buying way the fuck more guns. Hmm. Um, and what Basil Zaharoff did in St. Petersburg would establish him as the greatest arms dealer of his era. And perhaps of all time, it would also help make the horrible bloodletting of the First World War completely inevitable. But that story, Teresa, mm-hmm. we're going to have to talk about in part two. Oh,
0: no. How are you feeling so far? Well, I mean, like, you know, I, I, I know how... I know part of how it ends because I know war. I know we're getting up to the war, so yep. so I'm just like yeah. I want to put those dots together. Can't wait.
5: Yeah, is is good. It's a good time. We're we're at the part right now where um, I don't know. He's helped spark a couple of wars, <laughs> <laughs> but um, not nearly as much as he's gonna do. Um, but for now, it's time for all of you to go off and try to. Provoke your own <laughs> wars in Southeast Sophie's Asia face. and Eastern <laughs> Europe.
6: His, he means it's time to plug your pluggables,
0: Teresa. Uh-huh.
6: Yeah,
5: it is time to plug your pluggables.
0: Oh, my pluggables. I was like, wait. my pluggables, like, uh, yes. Sorry, I, I thought this was like, a, I thought you were doing a sponsored ad for Glade pluggables. Um, <laughs> no, 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 no. My pluggables. Oh, well, you know, you can listen to my podcast. You can tell me anything where comedians like Robert, who's been on before, um, confess something they've never told anyone before. Uh, I guess if this, this guy Basil was on, it'd be all lies. But generally speaking, people tell truths. <laughs> and then we talk. It's fun.
5: You know what else is fun? <laughs> Teresa. What? The fine products produced by great companies like Raytheon.
4: What Robert, Raytheon. What Robert means to say Farm
5: is that, to Table Robert, missiles full of knives. What?
6: Okay, what Robert means to say is that he's doing a live show with Billy Wayne Davis in Los Angeles Ooh. on March third at Dynasty Typewriter. You should get tickets.
5: Mm-hmm. It, And we will be selling artisanal arms there. We will Um, will not be doing
6: anything of that nature. You can follow Robert on Twitter at (laughs) IRAND. All I'm saying is. You can follow our podcast at at BastardsPod on Twitter and Instagram.
5: And if you're Greece or or Turkey and you want to buy some submarines, we'll have a couple of submarines. Thanks
6: for listening, Chris. End it.
5: com.
1: Plus